Amen. May it be so. May it be so. Well, we've been singing a theology of persecution and suffering. We're going to read a part of that theology in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and uh, verses 7 through 15. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So then, death is working in us, but life in you. And since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believe, therefore I spoke, we also believe and therefore speak, knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus and will present us with you. For all things are for your sakes, that grace, having spread through the many, may cause thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God. Amen. Father, I pray that as we study this passage and uh, think about our relationship to the persecuted church around the world, uh, that our hearts would be stirred up uh, to remember them as if chained with them, that we would uh, be more zealous in prayer, that we would consider our own future and uh, whether we ourselves are prepared to face suffering and pain as we ought. So may you be glorified in even the responses uh, to this message. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Every week I get uh, reports uh, from around the world of Christians who have been fired from their jobs, who have been kidnapped, tortured, imprisoned, uh, sometimes executed. Uh, Open Doors organization states that on average there are 13 Christians martyred uh, every day. That's the general average. In the first four months of this year, there was actually an uptick in deaths in Nigeria with 1,400 Christians being killed, but generally speaking, around 13 a day. Christianity is advancing so rapidly in many of these countries that demons are doing everything in their power to lash uh, back and try to stop that. And we can understand why demons and men who are moved by demons would be motivated to persecute Christians, but why does God allow Christians to be persecuted and to suffer? Why does he do that? If God is all-powerful, which he is, and if God's providence covers everything, including the wills of uh, even unbelievers, which it does, and if God dearly loves his people, which he does, why does he allow suffering and persecution? This past week, I did a rough outline of 24 biblical reasons why God allows the church to suffer and be uh, persecuted, and each of those reasons is totally consistent with God's love. James 1 says that God uses these things to promote maturity, endurance, wisdom, humility, and even opportunities for rewards in heaven. In fact, those rewards are so great that many people in the early church longed to be martyred. They hoped that they would be martyred. Um, By the time I had finished meditating on all 24 reasons, I could see why 
The theology of suffering that the underground church in China has is far more biblical than the theology of suffering or the lack of the theology of suffering uh, in the West. We try to avoid all suffering. We try to shield our children from all suffering. And I want to give you just a tiny hint, one little reason uh, why that is probably not a good idea. Now, I'll hasten to say that the fact that God uses persecution for our good does not mean we cannot resist it or that we need to be passive. Far from it. In fact, the Bible calls upon us to do exactly like we have been doing this morning, singing the imprecatory prayers of the Psalms against those enemies. We're putting that in God's uh, department. But uh, I do want us to, this morning, look at a very interesting reason why God allows persecution. It's given in the passage we just read. We're going to begin with the theme verse, which is verse 7. That one sets the tone, so I'm going to spend a little bit more time on it. It says, But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. Now, there is debate among scholars on what that treasure is, but most scholars think that the word this in the phrase, this treasure, settles the question, and I totally agree with them. It has to refer back to what he has just been talking about in verse uh, 6. Verse 6 says, For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so... The same God who said in Genesis chapter 1, let there be light, and there was light, has shone his light into our hearts. And that means that our new life is just as miraculous a work of God as the creation of light in Genesis 1 was. And that grace which brings light and and enables us to know God ushers us into repeated face-to-face communion uh, with the Lord Jesus. That gospel light is a treasure of infinite value. And every one of you who is believers has that treasure within you. And commentators point out that this brilliant light of verse 6 initially only shines inside of our hearts. It is hidden. It is hidden. It cannot be seen unless the lid is taken off of the clay pot or unless there are cracks in the pot through which that light can shine. When others notice the power and the light that transforms us, they're not going to credit that to the clay. (laughs) They're going to credit it to the light, right, to something else. Uh, We're just a clay pot, uh, and so I want to focus on the fact that the light is hidden in this clay pot. When people want to hide a key to their house for the guests to find, many times that they will put it in in a unlikely uh, place, uh, maybe even a grungy place, under the mat or in the drain storm or in the doghouse. Now, obviously, burglars know all of these unlikely places, but we're not hiding the key for those burglars, right? We're hiding the key so that the guests can come into the house. And in the same way, three times in this passage, God says that His grace comes out of the pots in such a way that His elect will see it and come into possession of the same grace, or as verse 15 words it, so that the grace will spread to others. The light comes out of one clay pot, and it invades another clay pot, and another, and another. Okay? Now, what does it mean that we are earthen vessels, or as some translate it, uh, clay pots? The Amplified Bible draws out the meaning of verse 7 this way. 
However, we possess this precious treasure, the divine light of the gospel, in frail human vessels of earth, that the grandeur and exceeding greatness of the power may be shown to be from God and not from ourselves. Now, our frailty is symbolized by calling us earthen vessels or clay pots, as some translate it. Clay pots are not particularly impressive. They're drab, they're fragile, they're very easily broken. Uh, They have no life or strength in their own. They're simply holding the light. They're holding the treasure. They're holding uh, the power of God. And so calling us earthen vessels is a beautiful metaphor of Christ's statement that without him, we can do nothing. But verse 7 goes on to say that God did it this way so that people would eventually glory in the treasure and not in the pot. If you stumbled upon a pot that was full of gold, uh, you'd be glorying in the gold, not so much the clay pot, right? And in the same way, when others see us, when they see the pot glowing from grace, or when they see his transforming power in our lives, God alone will get the glory. So the New King James Version of verse 7 says that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. And that's a key phrase. God wants others to see that the power that has changed us is of God and not of us. How we face and handle suffering is of God and not of us. How we handle blessings is of God and not of us. Now, here's the the thing. People don't tend to notice the treasure that is in the clay pot unless the lid is open. In other words, unless we boldly and verbally share the gospel or unless there are cracks in the pot. Uh, In other words, something that showcases God's supernatural grace without words. Now, Paul himself was an open book. He always had the lid off of his jar. He's always sharing the gospel. And uh, that's one way in which the light of this treasure uh, is communicated. But uh, this passage is going to list a number of other ways in which the reality of our Christianity is going to shine through the cracks of our frailty. And this is, by the way, the same message that you get in the Sermon on the Mount, where Christ called us to live in such a way that people could see God when they see our good works and therefore glorify our Father who is in heaven. When they see us loving our enemies who are persecuting us, they realize this is not merely human. There is something supernatural going on here. And so maybe this message that they're talking about, the gospel, has something to it. After all, why else could we explain that they can bless their enemies when their enemies are cursing them? Why else could uh, we explain that they are willing to lay down their lives rather than to deny uh, Jesus? And um, so the, um, uh, the, the, there's the verbal, there's the nonverbal, and when we verbalize or when they see uh, the light shining through, all that the, the non-elect see is a clay pot And uh, it does not impact them positively. Uh, When the clay pots shine forth, uh, many times actually they continue to hate us even more because uh, we're, we're so different. But when clay pots shine forth God's treasure into the lives of the as yet unsaved elect, it impacts them, it draws them, it makes them hunger for more. And God has willed to use 
the sufferings brought on the church in a way that none of those sufferings will be wasted. So that's kind of the background, and he's going to give nine supporting points to illustrate how this all works out in practical ways. First, in verse 8, he says, we are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. Now, that's a testimony to grace. Paul might have preferred not to be hard-pressed on every side, but God allowed that to happen so that the reality of God's grace having transformed Paul could be seen by everybody who looks on. And because people could see he's the real deal, they would believe the gospel despite the danger associated be, you know, with a man like that, uh, you know, if you believe, you might get in trouble being associated with Paul. And down through history, there have been many people who have been hard-pressed, and yet the gospel has leaked out of them so powerfully that God used them to reach many. And I'll just give you one example. Now, I could use Ethiopia because there's tons of stories from there, but you know the Ethiopian stories. So I'm going to use the country of Nepal. In 1960, there were 25 Christians in Nepal total. Today, there are estimated anywhere from two to three million Christians in Nepal. Now, that's astounding. In, 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 in this uh, 61 years, it's grown from 25 Christians to two to three million. And God has used very, very creative means to accomplish this, often as a direct result of persecution. You know, you've heard the phrase, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And people say, well, surely that's not going to grow the church. That's going to kill the church. But God does use even martyrdom to grow the church like crazy. And the church of Nepal is a beautiful testimony to every one of the points uh, in this uh, sermon. Um, it's uh, people seeing clay pots, but they're seeing the grace of God shining through those clay pots. And I'll tell you just one strand of that story of Nepal. Uh, back in the early years, an unbeliever from Nepal was studying in a university in the States, uh, became converted through uh, evangelism on the campuses, was discipled. When he went back to Nepal, he immediately started preaching the gospel and planted a church, was almost immediately imprisoned and thrown uh, into jail for, you know, who is an undeterminate uh, length of period along with his congregation. Now, if you think that American prisons are bad, and they are, I'd hate to be in an American prison, but if you think they're bad compared to Nep Nepalese prisons, they're paradise. Uh, you do not want to be in a prison in Nepal. But even though this man had been hard-pressed by difficulties every day, including severe persecution from fellow inmates, God's grace kept him from having a crushed spirit, and it made fellow prisoners wonder what is different about them. They could see God's grace leaking through the cracks, and they asked him a reason of the hope that was in him. He immediately took off the lid and preached the gospel to them, and many became converted, and he planted a church in that prison. Well, eventually, the guards realized this guy is kind of dangerous, and so they transferred him to another prison. And during the time that he was imprisoned, he was transferred to 14 different prisons, planted 14 churches, representing every language and ethnic group in Nepal. And when those prisoners were released from prison, they too were clay pots showcasing the marvelous treasure of God's grace in ways that made the church just grow like crazy. Anyway, after 14 prisons could not crush his spirits, which is what demons try to do to us, they want to crush our spirits, the man was finally sent to an insane asylum. 
I mean, talk about being hard-pressed on every side, but he was not crushed. He started casting demons out of the people in the insane asylum, and people would come to him and pray for healing. He would heal them, and as a result, a church was planted in the insane asylum. <laughs> so here's my question. What happens to you when you are hard-pressed? What do people see? Is it only a clay pot that they see? Or do they see the treasure of God leaking through that clay pot as they crack you, as they jostle you, as they push you around? Okay? That, that's a question we need to be answering this morning. How you react to the pressures of life showcases whether you're merely a clay pot or whether you are a clay pot with priceless treasure inside the powerful grace of God. Do we exhibit the supernatural? Okay, another crack in Paul's clay pot that allowed people to get a glimpse of the treasure within him was that Paul did not react to the difficult circumstances around him with despair. He was puzzled, yes. Uh, he, he, he was perplexed by what God was doing, but it never made him lose his trust. And this, too, showcased the fact that Paul lived by grace rather than by his fleshly abilities. He says here that he was perplexed, but not in despair. William Carey was a missionary who had numerous setbacks and yet handled them in faith. We do not know how the great fire uh, that's referred to in his biography happened, whether it was arson uh, or whether it was an accident. He certainly had plenty of enemies. But whatever the source, that fire could have left him in despair because years and years of work went up in flames. He was not just a missionary. He was a, a, a great linguist and a translator. And he had worked for years on translation work in India. He had various Indian translations, which were all ready to print. He had made the Canarese New Testament, two large Old Testament books in Sanskrit. He had made a Bengali dictionary, a Telugu grammar, a Punjabi grammar, and the magnum opus of his linguistic life, a well-advanced dictionary of Sanskrit. Now, he had brought all of those manuscripts to this building uh, where they had typeset and everything in order to be published, and somehow the building, everything, went up in flames, including the new typeset for uh, both uh, Chinese and um, for uh, Tamil, I think it was. And uh, they didn't have copy machines back in those days, so even the originals were lost. And Kerry said, nothing was saved but the presses. This is a heavy blow, as it will stop the printing of the Scriptures for a long time. Now, does any of that make any sense? Why would God allow all of this stuff to be lost when the Scriptures could have gone out so freely? Why would God allow years of efforts of this linguist uh, to go up in flames? Well, Kerry was convinced if God takes things away from us, it must be for our good. It is for the best. And so he submitted. He was perplexed by God's providence, but he did not despair. On the day of the fire, Kerry wrote, God will no doubt bring good out of this evil and make it promote our interests. It was a devastating blow, but it, he still had faith in God's providence. On the same day, Kerry's colleague, Marshman, wrote, this is another leaf in the ways of providence, calling for the exercise of faith in him whose word, firm as the pillars of heaven, has decreed that all things shall work together for good to them that love God. 
Be strong, therefore, in the Lord. He will never forsake the work of his hands. Now, much later, they discovered why God and his providence allowed this fire. That fire so saddened and just sickened the hearts of scholars in Britain uh, that um, it stirred up the hearts of everybody. In fact, it was constantly in the newspapers and uh, in the magazines of Great Britain. And money and workers, as a result, began to pour into India. And the translation work actually multiplied far faster with that fire than it would have without the fire. So Kerry was in total submission to God's will. Uh, he knew that God didn't need his labors anyway. But here was a man who was perplexed by God's difficult providences, but he had faith and he got right back, right, right back to work. The fact that Satan couldn't get any reaction out of Kerry other than perplexity and faith must have disappointed uh, Satan a great deal. Like Paul, Kerry showcased the fact that it was the treasure of the true gospel at work in his life. In verse 9, Paul goes on to say, persecuted but not forsaken. Uh, one of my <clears throat> close, close friends One of my close friends in an underground country that I will not name um, sensed, sensed God's presence with him as the police were just systematically breaking all of the bones in his feet. And then they tied him up, stretched him forward so his back would hurt, and it was in the freezing rain. He's just shivering like crazy. And he prayed to God. <clears throat> Lord, would you please be with me? And he instantly felt as if God was lifting him up. He suddenly felt warm. His shivering stopped. And he said, I had a great sleep all night. <laughs> uh, it was just a miraculous presence of God with him. Now, there were other times in prison when he was being tortured that he did not have that physical sense, but he knew God was with him, and that too brought him comfort. And there were so many ways in which the presence of the Lord was manifested in his life in that prison. For example, uh, he had led, I think, every one of his fellow prisoners to Christ, and he knew he was going to be released. He wanted to baptize them, but he didn't dare to baptize them because he knew they'd all be severely beaten, and he didn't want to put them on th that on them. But he told them, you know, I'm leaving. I really want you to be baptized today. Immediately after saying that, the lights went out, and unusually, the backup generator would normally come on, but it didn't. They quickly engaged in all the baptisms. Everybody was back in their seats by the time the lights came on. And just that little, uh, you know, indication of God's presence with them was such an encouragement to the rest of the prisoners who were in there. When you recognize God's invisible hand, in the small providences around you, it can bring encouragement, uh, just like this tangible and audible presence did. But you know what? One of the things that has encouraged so many saints in 
this undisclosed country is the knowledge that they are not forgotten and forsaken by the Western church, that we are regularly lifting them up. We're going to be praying over the tables for the persecuted church today, but I'm thankful this is a church that doesn't just pray once a year. We pray every week. We highlight the persecuted church uh, every week. And so may we be facing persecution ourselves in a way that highlights the treasure of God, because we may very well in this country be facing it too. In the next phrase, in verse 9, Paul says, struck down, but not destroyed. Now the word for struck down can refer to being laid low uh, by an instrument, uh, a weapon. And Paul had been very literally beaten with rods three times. I mean, that would lay you low. Uh, he had been scourged with 39 lashes on five different occasions. He was stoned once. Chapter 11, when you read through that, it gives all kinds of other horrendous experiences that had struck him down. He's not a theoretician. He knows exactly what he's talking about. This is not ivory tower theology, okay? He was definitely a testimony of the fact that you can be beaten to the ground and yet not be defeated, not be destroyed. And countless Christians have proven their unbeatable spirits in the face of torture. If you read Fox's Book of Martyrs, and if you haven't read that, I highly recommend that you do. It'll give you some realism, you know, of what people sometimes have to go through. But if you read that, you will see numerous accounts of people being struck down, even martyred, and yet, amazingly, manifesting the victory of Christ. And, and manifesting, you know, forgiveness of their persecutors, love triumphing over hate. Richard Wormbrandt related how his tormentors tried endlessly to shake his faith in God, and they couldn't. And they sometimes would ask him, what is going on? And he would say, I'm praying for your salvation. And again, there's so many ways in which this treasure of grace is manifested in persecution in ways that it would not be manifested if we did not go through sufferings. Verse 10 says, always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. Now the word for dying is not the normal word for death, which is the Greek word thanatos. This is the word necrosis, which indicates the deterioration toward death uh, that uh, goes on in our body. All of his sufferings were contributing to the deterioration of his body and eventual death. But what is cool about this expression is that in both death and in life, Paul is identifying with Jesus. He experiences his union with Jesus, not just in his spirit, but in his body. And let me break that apart. Paul says that the supernatural display of Jesus was always experienced by Paul, not just once in a while. Well, that means we can always experience this treasure, this grace, this supernatural within our lives, whether we're on a high with blessings from the Lord, whether we are going through suffering. And it's in the body, not just in the spirit. He says, carrying about Christ dying in his own body, as well as carrying about his resurrection power in his own body. Again, it's experienced in his body, not just his spirit. Third, the first clause refers to going through suffering with Christ's presence and power. The second clause refers to the times he was strengthened and healed, and he was healed many times, by God's resurrection power. So this means that both 
Uh, the suffering and the healing manifested the treasure of God's grace to himself and to others. Uh, people could see the treasure. They could see the supernatural uh, light of God's grace in both suffering and healing. Now, people love the first part and almost only quote the first part of Philippians 3.10, which says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. And we say, yes, yes, yes. We want to know the power of his resurrection. That's only half of the equation. It's a beautiful half of the equation. But here's what the full verse says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. If he was going to suffer, he wanted to experience that suffering knowing the power of Christ. Whether he's being healed, whether he's uh, being scourged, either way, it's experiencing life through union with Jesus. So his doctrine of grace was not theoretical. It was manifested in his body. And this, too, is the constant experience of persecuted people. I'll tell you another story. Esther was a teenager kidnapped not too long ago. Sometime, um, I think, in the last year or two, uh, Gary could probably correct me, but uh, captured by Boko Haram, a branch of ISIS in the country of Cameroon. She was gang-raped and abused. Her life was ISIS was horrible. Many unbelievers commit suicide in those circumstances, and she was an unbeliever at the time. She, too, uh, had no hope. But somehow she managed to escape after she became pregnant. But sadly, when she came back to her village that she had been kidnapped from, she was a pariah. The non-Christian villagers didn't trust her, wouldn't accept her, wouldn't accept her baby. Uh, she was all alone in the world until someone introduced her to Christ, and she was able to face her torments by Christ's power. Now, it didn't happen instantly, but there was healing she experienced in her conversion, and there was a constantly growing sense of Christ's grace sustaining her and changing her. They had a very cool ceremony at her conversion. They had her very literally write on pieces of paper her shame, her suffering, her sorrows, her anger, her pain, her doubts, everything negative. She just wrote it down on paper, and then she pinned it at the bottom of a cross, and that represented Jesus, who also suffered on our behalf and who's going to take these things away. And then the elders burned those papers as a, a kind of a visual helping her to find peace with God, and she did. Even though her villagers continued to ostracize her, even though the outward torment had not ceased, the villagers began to notice something had completely changed in her. As Open Doors stated in a recent posting, this teenage mother, who had endured unspeakable agony at the hands of a brutal regime, was surprisingly, impossibly at peace. Some of these people who used to mock me now ask me my secret, Esther says. I tell them I forgave my enemies and now trust God to take vengeance in his time. And I like the fact that she didn't ignore the need for vengeance, right? But she said, Lord, you're my avenger. And that freed her up to love uh, her enemies. In any case, hers is another illustration of the light of that inward treasure being let out in two ways. One is by speaking and the other is by a changed life. God's life was shining through the cracks of this clay pot. In verse 11, Paul says, For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested 
in our mortal flesh. There it is again, in the flesh, in the clay pot. The clay pot is being cracked so that the treasure of Jesus might be manifested there. This is definitely not a Joel Osteen message of happiness, peace, and prosperity, right? Uh, everything going well. The we refers to all of us who live in Christ. Satan and his demonic hosts are always seeking our destruction, and if they can use human agents to accomplish it, they will. Jesus said that if the world hated him, it is guaranteed the world will hate us as well. And so we ought not to be surprised if we start receiving persecution from the government, or you receive persecution from your work, or from uh, even unsaved uh, relatives uh, or neighbors. Identification with Christ means identification with the one against whom the world, the flesh, and the devil are fighting. You're identified uh, as enemy as well. When they see the treasure, they are going to hate it. Now, in contrast, when it's God's time, when the as-yet-unsaved elect see the treasure, they yearn for it. They are drawn to it. They desire to have the same supernatural attributes of the Holy Spirit that they don't have, but they see you have. And so Paul says this being delivered over to death is allowed by God so that, here's the verse, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. And again, you cannot spiritualize away and uh, say, oh, that's just in your spirit. This is in the flesh. And that can refer to healings. It can refer to restored strength that has been torn down. And Paul received that a number of times. He was actually resurrected sometimes. Or it can simply be that God's allowing others, uh, allowing the suffering so that others will see Christ in us. And I think a very vivid example of seeing Christ and those being delivered to death occurred in 2015. Now, in this case, they weren't uh, rescued, uh, at least from one perspective, they weren't rescued because they died. But from another perspective, actually, they were rescued because they went straight into glories of, of heaven at least those uh, of them who uh, uh, were definitely uh, believers. Um, there is a huge evangelical movement, uh, even among the cops uh, there in Egypt. So it depends on how you look at it. But I want to focus upon how they face death with joy, peace, and confidence. Their demeanor was a testimony to millions. And you may have even seen the video, which exhibited a parade of 21 terrorists leading, they're all dressed in black, they're leading 21 Egyptian Christians dressed in orange jumpsuits along the beach to have their throats slit on video in Libya. And the peace with which those men faced death was mystifying to many. It ended up being watched by millions, and this was ISIS itself who, who allowed that. Well, within 36 hours of the executions, the Egyptian Bible Society put out a tract, Two Rows by the Sea, contrasting the true rows of men. And so they had a clear gospel message and scriptures that were in there. And then they had a poem that I'm going to read to you. And there was about one and a half million copies that were distributed uh, almost immediately. It had a major, major impact. Here's the poem at the end of the tract. Two Rows by the Sea. Two rows of men walked the shore of the sea on a day when the world's tears would run free. <clears throat> One a row of assassins who thought they did right, the other of innocents, true sons of light. One holding knives <clears throat> in hands held high, <clears throat> the other with hands empty, defenseless, and tied.
one row of slits to conceal glaring dead eyes, the other with living eyes raised to the skies. One row stood steady, pallbearers of death, the other knelt ready, welcoming heaven's breath. One row spewed wretched, contemptible threats, the other spread God-given peace and rest. A question, who fears the other? The row in orange, watching paradise open, or the row in black, with minds evil and broken? And I think that's a good question. Who fears whom? We need not fear martyrdom, but demons definitely fear fearless men like those 21 martyrs because demons know the priceless treasure, the brilliant light that at least some of them had within them. Verse 12 says, So then death is working in us, but life in you. In other words, a direct result of Paul's dying was producing life in other people. Who wouldn't be willing to die if you knew a bunch of other people would be saved? Who wouldn't be willing to suffer if you knew a bunch of people would be saved as a direct result of your suffering? I think we would be. Uh, yes, people are being imprisoned and executed in Iran, Afghanistan, other Muslim countries, but the stark contrast that the world witnesses between the followers of Allah who have no hope, peace, joy, or supernatural love, and the followers of Jesus who have those things in spades has made many long for the gospel. And by the way, even secular researchers are saying that the growth of the church in Iran is astounding. Uh, I read a secular uh, a research report that says that there was over a million Christians in Iran. Uh, Christians who live there say it's much higher. Likewise, huge numbers of Muslims in Afghanistan are becoming believers for the same reason. Uh, they want to face death with the same confidence that the believers do. They want the joy that the believers had. Uh, I, I read about a recent young Afghan who's been watching a Christian program of SAT 7 satellite TV, and Mission Box uh, says this. <clears throat> One viewer in Afghanistan sick of the terror and fear imposed by radicals, called the ministry's counseling team asking to meet Jesus in person. I had to explain you can't really do that, but um, a week later he called again, this time with 25 young men crammed into his apartment, some having to stand in the bathroom because there was no other space, all eager to know more about Jesus. The following week there were 50 people jammed into the apartment, desperate to hear more. And so, yes, persecution is producing death in many Afghanis, um, uh, Christians, but it was producing life in so many more. The cracks that ISIS was making in the clay pots was exposing the glorious treasure of God's grace. Uh, verse 13 shows another way in which the treasure shows through the clay pots. It's boldness and witness, a faith in Jesus that simply cannot be shut up. It says, and since we have the same spirit of faith, According to what is written, I believed and therefore spoke. We also believe and therefore speak. Are you a believer? Well, Paul says, therefore, speak. Tell people about it. Share the good news. Faith in Christ drives these people to speak. Do we speak? That's actually taking the lid off the clay pot and being more bold. In 1555, Two Protestant pastors, Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley, were burned at the stake together at Oxford, and as they were dying, Latimer said to Ridley, Be of good cheer, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day, by God's grace, light up such a candle in England as I trust will never be put out. 
and it lit far more than a candle. There were bonfires all throughout England as a result of, uh, of this, uh, uh, th 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 this, these martyrdoms. Now, did people sometimes fear to speak and even recant their faith? Did they sometimes do the exact opposite of what Paul in this verse says believers ought to do? Yes, they sometimes did. Thomas Cramner was a, a case in point. He was a very important leader in the Reformation. When the Roman Catholic Queen Mary, known as Bloody Mary, came to power, he was imprisoned. And under enormous pressure, uh, he finally signed a recantation of his faith, hoping to save his life. And he immediately regretted it. Now, Queen Mary hated him so much because of what he had done that she wanted him executed regardless of his recantation. And so on the day of his execution, he was given an opportunity to speak at St. Mary's a church, and everybody expected he's going to talk about his recantation, and he's so sorry that he left Rome, but he did the exact opposite. After confessing his sins to God and exhorting the people, he recanted his recantation and said that since his right hand had signed the recantation, he wanted his right hand to be burned first. And so Cramner was burned at the stake in the same spot that Latimer and Ridley were, and as he was burning, he repeatedly thrust his right hand into the fire saying, this unworthy hand. And he boldly testified to the grace of Christ. So as a clay pot filled with true treasure, he could not help but fulfill verse 13. And since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believed and therefore I spoke, we also believe and therefore speak. Romans 10.9 gives one of the evidences of our salvation. It says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Treasure within us must, it must come out of the mouth. We must confess with our mouths. After suffering in the flames, but before he died, Cranmer prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And John Fox says that Cranmer, like Samson, overthrew more enemies in his death than in his life. So why does God allow martyrdoms to take place? Well, to showcase the supernatural faith that cannot be shut up. Verse 14 ends these series of supporting points by stating that martyrdom can be a testimony to anyone that we know death is not final. We can face death with boldness and courage. And actually, out in Ethiopia, funerals were probably the means of more growth of the church than any other means of outreach because when people would go to pagan funerals, they would cut themselves and wail and scream in hopelessness. They'd go to Christian funerals, and they would look on, and they would see these people singing praises, joyful, uh, at the, this homegoing, that uh, they're going to be meeting this relative in heaven. Such stark contrast that hordes of people said, we want this same peace that they had. So even the funerals were marvelous means of growth, and in Ethiopia it grew into a huge church. But I'm jumping ahead of myself. I haven't even read the verse. <laughs> verse 14 says, knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus and will present us with you. So life after death and a glorious resurrection. Those who are convinced of that have died with cheerfulness, joy, and hope. And I think of Margaret Wilson, an 18-year-old covenanter in the Scottish Reformation. She and an older lady refused to re recant their profession of faith, their Protestantism. 
And uh, the older lady's name was Margaret McLaughlin. They were both uh, sentenced to death by drowning in the rising tide near Wigton. Uh, Both women were promised deliverance if they would say, God save the king, and take an oath, which really amounted to renouncing the faith. They refused. They were tied to stakes in the harbor awaiting the the tide to come in and drown them. And uh, in order to intimidate the younger girl whom they hoped would recant and they could save her, they put the older woman out further so that as she slowly drowned, it would put fear into the young lady and, uh, and she would recant. But it actually did, had none of that effect. And I'm reading from the book, The Sufferings of the Church of Scotland by Robert Wadrow. He says, when the water was overflowing her fellow martyr, some about Margaret Wilson asked her what she thought of the other now struggling with the pangs of death. She answered, What do I see but Christ in one of his members wrestling there? Think you that we are the sufferers? No. It is Christ in us, for he sends none a warfare upon their own charges. I should just add in here, there's so many scriptures that say Christ actually suffers with us when we suffer. That's one of the most amazing things. How could a glorified person, Jesus is a glorified person, how can he suffer? But we are. We're filling out the sufferings of Christ, it says. Anyway, continuing to read, when Margaret Wilson was at the stake, she sang the 25th Psalm from verse 7th downward in a good way and read the 8th chapter to the Romans with a great deal of cheerfulness and then prayed. While at prayer, the water covered her, but before she was quite dead, they pulled her up and held her out of the water till she was recovered and able to speak. And then by Major Windrum's orders, she was asked if she would pray for the king. She answered, she wished the salvation of all men and the damnation of none. Uh, One deeply affected with the death of the other in her case said, Dear Margaret, say God save the king. Say God save the king. She answered in the greatest steadiness and composure, God save him if he will, for it is his salvation I desire. Whereupon some of her relations nearby, desirous to see her life spared, Uh, if possible, called out to Major Windrum, Sir, she has said it, she has said it. Whereupon the Major came near and offered her the abjuration, charging her instantly to swear it, otherwise return to the water. Most deliberately she refused and said, I will not, I am one of Christ's children, let me go. Upon which she was thrust down again into the water, where she finished her course with joy. She knew, as all of us know, that this life is a fleeting moment. We think way too much of this life. It's a fleeting moment in eternity. Our sufferings are but a fleeting moment when compared to the eternal joys that we will have in heaven. And if everything that Paul has been talking about this morning is foreign to you, you don't understand it, it doesn't make any sense today, and you don't know that if you died today, you would be in heaven, then I would urge you, confess to God, tell him that you are a sinner doomed to eternal suffering in hell, and tell him that you believe Jesus died as your substitute and you gladly receive his redemption. Tell him that you repent of your sins and put your faith in Jesus alone for your salvation. 
Tell him he is now the Lord of your life. You will gladly do whatever he tells you to do, even if it means laying down your life for him. You want to follow him, and he will fill your clay pot full of treasure and the joy of the Lord, joy indescribable and full of glory. Now, the world cannot understand that. It makes no sense whatsoever to the world. But those of us who have already been filled with this treasure can understand exactly what Paul is saying. And if you already are a believer who knows Jesus, then that means you're a clay pot filled with treasure and you want to share that treasure with other people. You want to. Don't hold on to it for yourself. Let the light of Christ shine through you. And you can do that by taking the lid off of the pot and sharing the gospel. And you can also do it by showing to the world that you handle the sufferings that are around you, not with grumbling and complaining. You handle them with the grace of God, with the rich treasure that is within you, not with a stiff upper lip. Verse 15 talks about that sharing of this treasure with all those whom you know. It says, For all things are for your sakes, that grace, having spread through the many, may cause thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God. Now, commentators point out that the all things refers to the preceding context, everything that we've just gone through. The point is, God allowed Paul to suffer so that the treasure of God's grace would leak out of the clay pot and would spread and spread and spread to many. And the result would be many souls thanking God for the same treasure they now possess, and all would redound to God's glory. And so verse 15 is really reiterating the theme of verse 7, only it's using different words. So again, here's my question. Do you have a passion to see the treasure of grace that is in your clay pot coming out of you and spreading into the lives of many? And if you struggle with that, it's hard for you to confess Christ publicly, then ask God to, number one, give you a new appreciation for the incredible glories of the treasure that you possess, and ask Him to give you, by the filling of His Spirit, the boldness to speak that the church of Acts had. Even if they mock you, which is one kind of persecution, right? One kind of suffering. Even if they reject you, which is another kind of suffering. And if you need moral support, to be able to start sharing your faith, well, talk to Bill Crilly or Michael Elliott or John Mays or any, or just get together with somebody else and go two by two and start sharing the faith. But take seriously the reality of verse 13. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believe, therefore I spoke, we also believe, and therefore speak. The believers in Europe were so constant in sharing their faith when Roman Catholics caught them and, and put them into prison, the inquisitors would many times put a tongue clamp on their tongue and get a, a red-hot iron and put that on the end of the tongue so it would blister up, swell up, so that the clamp would not fall off. And the reason that they did this is they did not. They saw multitudes coming to Christ through the preaching that would happen from people who were burning. And they did not want the preaching to happen. The one that's in your outlines there is from uh, Hans Brett, and it was picked out of the ashes uh, by a fellow pastor. But even that was a testimony that uh, these people, without physical force, could not be shut up. This is what God's grace within us does. It wants to share the treasures. You could not keep the Christians of that day silent. The believers in Morocco today know the dangers of speaking about this treasure. They know it very well. Persecution, even death, could be the result. 
but those Christians cannot help but share the message. The past few months have seen some college students going from city to city in Morocco, uh, sharing as they're able with people who are willing to listen. And uh, one of the teams uh, found a young man uh, who was quite willing to listen, and they read half of the Gospel of John. I mean, any of us can read, right? Just have somebody sit down, read. (laughs) They read half the Gospel of John. He was very interested, wanted to believe, but he was scared to death to do so because he knew if he believed that he'd be persecuted and probably he would be put to death. Uh, I don't know how many weeks later it is. Gary might know the the number of weeks, but uh, it's fairly recently. They met him again. They read the second half of the Gospel of John and he just bowed his knees before Jesus, gave his life to Jesus, knowing full well that that could mean his mortal death, that his body would be afflicted. Uh, I don't know his name. Pray for him. We're just calling him Abdul, okay? Uh, Abdul and many others like him have just had their clay pots filled with treasure, a treasure that they are now burdened to share at great peril to their bodies. So may God stir up the whole church of Jesus Christ to have the boldness of these Christians of the past and of the present. Amen. Oh, Father, what an exhausting topic, and yet what an energizing topic this is. And I pray that you would energize us by the power of your Holy Spirit uh, to have the attitudes of these saints who have gone Uh, to glory in the past, and of these saints today who are suffering in prisons and suffering in in jungles uh, where they have fled and all of their properties have been confiscated. Uh, Help us to treasure you and to treasure your grace more than we treasure money, comfort, houses, relatives, anything else. May we even cast aside the approval of man at the feet of Jesus and only live for your approval. Help us, Father, to be men, women, and children of faith who will be bold even in the face of persecution. Give us grace, Father, to be able to sing this a song that was written in Habakkuk, that even if everything is taken away from us, yet we will rejoice in you because of the incredible treasure we have right now and because of the incredible glories you have stored up for us in heaven. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.